Hey, welcome to Peripheral Thinking, a series of conversations with entrepreneurs, advisors, activists and academics intended to inspire you with ideas from the margins, the periphery, because that's where the ideas which will shape tomorrow are hiding today on the margins, the periphery. This week, I spoke to Professor Sam North. Sam works out of the University of Exeter. He's an award-winning writer of eight novels and two films. We talk about a new course he's teaching, or he's created, actually, which connects the various story networks of religion, mycelium, and social media. I know. Interesting. The course subtitle is All You Need to Know. God. Story. Facebook. Mushrooms. Let's dive in. Sam, welcome to peripheral thinking. Thank you for having me. We met virtually, I guess is how most people meet these days, on the Deep Transformation Network, which was a small community which has been initiated by another of our guests, Jeremy Lent, who's has written two books. Actually, I think he's written three books, hasn't he? But uh, two books within the kind of orbit of my kind of awareness, The Patterning Instinct and The Web of Meaning. And I, Jeremy, uh, has been a guest on the podcast. As I mentioned, he was talking about the book, The Web of Meaning. And so I'm curious, what was your connection to the community that Jeremy has set up and connection to Jeremy? It started with a local friend of mine who's a sculptor, a well-known sculptor called Peter Randall Page. And I was writing an, an essay, researching and writing an essay in, in which I, Peter Randall Page really just recommended me, I read The Patterning Instinct by Jeremy Lent. And so I read it and I immediately knew I'd be citing from it. And I immediately knew that well, it's an important, it's an important work. And so I emailed him and I was very surprised to get an answer. <laughs> you know, it's rather wonderful. And I, I, yes, I guess I'm prone to doing that, just suddenly emailing people that I really admire and like their work. For, and often, of course, people don't reply, but often they do. And I think particularly with writers, they really appreciate someone latching onto their work and, and showing some appreciation of what they're up to. And so I'm quite often surprised about how many people do answer in a really productive way. And then Jeremy told me that I, I told him what I was doing and he said, well, he's doing setting up this network. And I said, well, that's really interesting to me because I'm doing this. And, and so I said, well, let me know. And so a, a, a month or two later, he invited me to be a moderator, you know, one of the initial, you know, as you were the initial people to sign up for it, to be the, among the first to sign up for this network that he started. So uh, my connection is exactly the same. I really enjoyed the book. And so I wrote him an email in much the same way. And uh, I'm also prone to that. But I think it's actually, it's just worthwhile kind of reminding you, because I think too often we sort of assume, don't we, that actually, A, people don't want to hear us. But of course, if they don't want to hear from us, they ignore us. But too often people, I think, would be motivated or would be interested to contact somebody and just don't. They just let it go. So I guess this is a, a kind of an invitation if you have that urge to do it, to write. Absolutely. You know, you you know about entrepreneurship. You of all people know about entrepreneurship. And it's, it's something I'm often talking to my students about is this spirit of making things happen, the spirit of actually you can divide the events that happen to us into sort of two types. You know, there's the types that happen to you, like a pandemic arrives. <laughs> and, and then there are those events that you create by virtue of exerting your willpower in the world because you wish them to happen. And those events are, it's, I think it's a really important skill. It's the sort of thing I think should be taught in schools. Do you know what I mean? That, that, that difference between the two types of event and the difference in a life that you can actually actively create by virtue of making things happen. Yeah, I was struck by that you talk about it in school because my children are, are quite little and so they're like in primary school age. And uh, 
kind of often had this sort of debate, you know, we live in this sort of in Hove, which is a suburb of Brighton on the south coast of the UK. People get very stuck on the kind of treadmill of school and the journey that it's on and what you need to be doing, even when the kids are really little, like 10 and 7, like my kids are. You have a set of hurdles that you have to jump over and, yeah. But actually, in many respects, the thing that would be the kind of best education for them, as you're talking about, is a creative competence, an ability to kind of engage with the world to, you know, irrespective of the outcome, engage with the world, confidently try and make things happen. It's, it's just that constructive engagement. Yeah. And learn from your failures. And uh, Steiner had a lot of uh, a lot to say on this matter, you know, as a famous educationist, you know, so Steiner schools tend to operate more along this way, where they tap into what students really want to do and want to make happen. I think it's, it should be much more in the mainstream. More peripheral thinking, Ben, that should That's be in the mainstream. Need. That's all we need. More, much more of that, particularly in universities, I'd say. Uh, when we, we met via the Deep Transformation Network, you, you, we were doing a, a kind of little introduction of all of the people who were moderators, those kind of pioneer members, as you put it. And uh, you were talking about a new course that you were looking to launch. I guess, actually, some content for that. So you work at a university. You're a professor. Maybe give us a little bit of a background of what you do and where. So, yes, I'm, I'm an associate professor at the uh, University of Exeter in, in the southwest of England. And I work for a large, I work within a large English department and the creative writing team, of which I'm a member, is a kind of small group of maybe five or six, six of us, various creative writers within a, a really enormous English department. I think there's over 70 academics in the English department. So it's a big English department and we, we cover all sorts of ground. But this is a new module that I wanted to devise and that actually I'm perhaps jumping the gun a bit because it hasn't. It's about to be approved. We have this kind of approval mm. process where, if you design a module within a program, then it goes through a kind of quite rigorous kind of testing, stress testing sort of system for academic approval, financial approval, and so on and so forth. And we're about to. I think. I think we'll go through okay because everyone seems to really welcome it. And the nice thing about it is that it, it's going to cross different disciplines, so it's going to have its home in actually not in creative writing, it's going to have its home in theology and religion, but it's going to be available to students of a communications degree and also an English degree, and it's also going to be available at their May level. So all things being equal, and it makes it through this journey. Do you want to give us a little kind of headline for what you're hoping this to be? Yeah, well, I'm calling it a strange word. So the title of the module, it's, it's called Atopia, which means a space without boundaries. So Atopia, and there's lots of utopia or throughtopias, and there's lots of topia kind of words kicking about. Atopia I particularly like because it sounds, yeah, I like, this, I like what the word means, this idea of crossing boundaries. And I think one of the things that's happened in the digital age is this business of, of boundaries really just kind of dissolving in lots of in lots of very crucial ways, particularly around the idea of networks, you know, where boundaries just don't exist. They're just human beings on the screen in the digital space or whatever. So I call it atopia, but then my colleague in, in theology and religion came back and said, I think we need a bit of a we need a bit of a subtitle because it's like, what is that? It needs something that would just alert people to what this is so then i said okay this is the subtitle so i said atopia dash god stories facebook and mushrooms uh not you would you would probably sort of class yourself as a marketer but obviously the first rule of marketing any new venture is to have an extraordinary idea something captivating and there is something extremely intriguing about the title and subtitle. Keep talking, Ben. Keep that exactly what I want to hear. I hope it'll be very attractive. I hope so. We'll see. I mean, the nice thing about doing things like this is that you soon find out, you know, in September when we've got three students, we'll know that maybe it wasn't such a good idea. 
And if we have 100 students, we'll know it was a brilliant idea. So we'll find out. I guess the the reality with all of these things is, you know, three students this year is 10 students next year is 15 the year after and so on and so forth. Yeah. So what would you say is the best way of talking about this? Is the best way of talking about this to dip into each one first and then stitch it together? Or how do you imagine this as a family? I I suppose the best way is to mention a sort of three-pronged thing that's going on here, the reason. And it's a bit like having three vases on a shelf that you know are sort of different vases, but they are they live on the same shelf. They are the sort of the same thing while being very different, but they're all vases. Do you know what I mean? So they, but the style of them, you can see that they're made by the same person and they're similar. So, so these three things, and I know the subtitle has four, but God and stories are together. They were really looking at the idea of religious storytelling being networks of cooperation. So religious storytelling is it's the most extraordinary thing that happened to storytelling, really, when the element of magic crept into storytelling and created these incredibly enduring religious myths and, and stories that form a basis for how people live their lives. But they're essentially networks of cooperation. Religions are networks where you and I agree that we have the same kind of moral outlook. We subscribe to the same story. And we cooperate with each, with each other heavily. We contribute to the church's coffers. We divide our labor. We share our work. We share the, the benefits of our work. And therefore, we sustain our existence in a much more powerful way. So that kind of hyper-social or eusocial element to the human story is, is, is incredibly successful. And we are like, if you count the eusocial species as being ants, termites, wasps, bees, and human beings, you know, you can see that storytelling is the way in which we cement our our cooperation in the way that pheromones are used by ants to cement and create their cooperation. So storytelling is not just some kind of entertainment function. It is is it in deeply embedded in the way in which we in the way in which we live and, and religions of different types and cults as well. I mean even small stories that are you know, are the most extraordinarily powerful versions of these cooperative structures. So religions are like nests in a way, but by virtue of being a story with myth and, and costume and diet and all these other sort of paraphernalias, they can cross over boundaries. You know, they, they can they can invade, they can grow and spread. And so that's one prong, if you like, of of a, a cooperative network that that is a religious story. So that's prong number one. Prong number two, or vase number one, if we could shouldn't mix our mix our metaphors. Vase number one is the religious story. So vase number two are are the social networks, the Facebooks and TikToks and Instagrams of this of, of our age, which are essentially as well, um, you know, enormous kind of networks of cooperation. Even things like eBay, even commercial ones, they are networks of cooperation where we agree a certain kind of form of behaviours, a certain form of interreactions, and an interlinked quality. And we're all hoping to benefit, you know, some of us commercially, some of us just in terms of our social life, some of us in terms of our charitable enterprises, our sports groups, or whatever it is, whatever, however we're using networks. And the Deep Transformation Network is a political network. It has a mission. It has a story that it wishes to, to, to prosecute. And those of us who are signing up to Jeremy Lent's network wish to spread that political message and recruit, you know, and, and cooperate and share just as we're doing now. 
So this, and it's an extraordinary modern phenomenon of, of enormous power. And the third one, which is perhaps even more extraordinary story, the third kind of vase on the shelf, is the history of fungal networks, mycelial networks, um, which from the beginning of time have literally, from the first time that sort of microbes crawled out onto the earth, have have cooperated with other forms of life in order to spread these enormous networks, which we're only really recently beginning to understand just how fundamental they are to all forms of life, whether vegetable or animal. And, and so that kind of idea of a of fungal networks creating a kind of, or evolving, shall we say, evolving a cooperative venture in order to thrive is is one of the great and extraordinary stories of nature. And, it, and it's also quite a new story. You know, it's quite a new area. And I think we're only just beginning to understand the extent of the success of fungal networks. All three of those have a sort of pattern of feed, as it were, have what they the fuel for the networks, how they grow, how they spread, how they cement their influence. But they also have various ways in which they can die or decay or feed off decay or create decay. And they and corruption is rife, you know, like in all forms of life, corruption is rife and corruption and decay. We live on top of corruption and decay. All of, all of life lives on top of corruption and decay. And networks have the same... Um, you know, idea. The internet itself was was devised, you know, in the Cold War, and it was meant to be attack proof. That was the idea behind the internet. It was that there was no central thing that you could destroy, and it's a bit like the, the, our blood supply. If you stop my artery here, my blood supply just finds another way of going around it. So the internet was designed to be proof against decay, but actually, it's really quite fragile. It's really quite susceptible to attack, and certainly, it's susceptible to corruption. So these were the ideas that we're all just putting, throwing together into this module, these three vases, as it were, to bump them up alongside each other and, and create an understanding, hopefully, a sort of almost quite, what I'm hoping for is a really quite new kind of understanding of how we should live our lives and how we should navigate these, I think, quite difficult, new the insides of our heads, I think, are profoundly different from how they were 20 years ago, profoundly different. And I think we need to navigate that new consciousness in a way, which has happened as a result of the digital age. And I don't think anyone really foresaw quite how powerful the digital age was going to become. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a kind of huge amount, a huge amount in there. So there was something that you you said you mentioned kind of early on, this kind of idea of the magic of storytelling being inserted into it. And, and so, what, what, what do you mean by it? What do you mean when you say the kind of the magic of storytelling? What do you mean in that? What I mean is that storytelling, if you go back into the work of people like Brian Boyd, who's written brilliantly on the idea of storytelling evolving out of gossip around the campfire. And as hunter-gatherers, we cooperate, we divide our labor. You're a great hunter. I grow brilliant berries. You know, your wife is great at constructing huts. My wife is a fantastic cook or storyteller or whatever it might be. So we divide our labor and we cooperate and we meet around the campfire and around the campfire... We morally assess how good our cooperation is and we punish those who are stealing or bullying or any of the other anti-cooperative behaviours. And, and gossip gossip is the way in which we police our, our co cooperation. And then what happens is gossip becomes a very powerful force and good gossip lasts. Good gossip is repeated 
and and it's repeated over and over again. And then if I start to begin to realize what makes for good gossip, I begin to get skilled at gossip itself. Then I begin to realize that if you put a magical element into storytelling, in other words, if you have a half man and a half creature or such like, or some kind of mystical element to it that is beyond the other side of the grave, some kind of supernatural element, then that story becomes much more powerful. That piece of gossip then it evolves into a myth or a legend, which people can sign up to. You know, they can repeat, and it becomes part of their life. So, and these are the very early, very strange kind of spiritual kind of beliefs of early tribes, which, which are fascinating. But they involve magic. You know, they involve a magical supernatural element, and so the story actually begins to work not just. As gossip from the bottom up, it begins to work from the top down. So the, the magical elements means that I can use a story in order to create cooperation. So I can recruit you to my powerful magical story, and you will cooperate with me to the nth degree because you are quite frightened of the forms of punishment that I can inflict on you. I can send you to hell or whatever the you know supernatural punishment might be. And so the cooperation becomes not just the run-of-the-mill cooperation that you might expect from a cooperative species, it actually becomes, or could be, almost self-destructive. I am willing to blow myself up for this story because of what I believe. And so these kind of magical element is a crucial insertion that means that storytelling is not just from the ground up creating cooperation, but it's also enforcing cooperation or recruiting cooperation from the top down. And that's, the, that's how evolution has done it. And it's the writers like Brian Boyd who've done just wonderful work in this area. For, so we're really beginning to understand how story works. And networks like Facebook are giant campfires. Stories take off, stories take off whether they're true or untrue. And often the most untrue stories are the ones that really take off. You know, President Trump is fighting a network of paedophiles from a chicken restaurant in Kentucky. You know, the more mad you make it, the more people are inclined to really love believing it. And that's unfortunately how, you know, that's how we've evolved as kind of story creatures. And, and we've got to learn. We've got to learn to change that, really, or at least to understand it. Yeah, so there's a relatively recent understanding, this this kind of understanding of the, the mechanic and dynamic and power of story has been understood in some form for maybe for as long as we've been telling stories. I'm, I'm kind of curious around that. Well, it's been effective for as long as we've been telling stories, but I don't think it's been understood in quite the in in quite such kind of powerful ways uh, as in the last twenty years. And I think that understanding is yes, relatively recent from anthropology and, and from people like Brian Boyd and Christopher Boehm, you know, who really understand how the human creature and story work together. Just to, just how how extraordinarily important it is. I'm kind of curious about whether that kind of understanding does create sort of story as a bit of a weapon actually, or kind of people understanding its power more and what kind of bubbles up in that space? Yes, and I, and I don't think that President Trump has given an inch of thought to the power of storytelling in terms of has he read Brian Boyd and realised that he can create... Do you know what I mean? It's entirely instinctive. I, and, and that's what's wonderful but also awful about it is that you don't, ha you don't need to teach us about story. A two-year-old child, you'll know you've got young children. You don't have to teach them what makes for a good story. It's, it's very it's a native instinct in us. It's, it's, it's like pheromones for ants. You don't have to teach an ant about pheromones. They know exactly what to do with their pheromones. 
you know what I mean? It's not, it's in the DNA. And, and I think stories are our pheromones. And so people have a native instinct for it and don't really need to analyze it. But I think we do now. And I think that's why I think education is so important in terms of schools. I think people really need to understand the mechanics of storytelling and the mechanics of networks and how they work. And I think that's, for me, it's the most important subject of the day. So this idea that one of the things then that gave the kind of fuel of the power to the religious story was this infusion of magic, in a sense, if I understand the problem. So that takes it on to a completely new level of, of power. You know, I live in a rural area. We have a group of farmers who share their farm equipment. Do you know what I mean? It's bottom up. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's that kind of stage of altruism, reciprocal altruism. It's not. It's the way... It's the way human beings have operated forever, literally forever. And it's highly effective, And it, it, but it means there are certain sort of parameters to, you know, that kind of altruism, that kind of reciprocal altruism. I have to know those people for a reasonably long period of time. I have to be confident I'm going to bump into them again or, or know them for long enough to get my, my, my share of the cake, you know, having given them their share of the cake. So all these things tie into the idea of reciprocal altruism, which is a ground up kind of cooperative venture that is very yeah it's very natural it's organic and it grows from the ground up and it really works but with magic and storytelling being the way in which we form these groups suddenly i can i can actually invent a story and impose it from the top down and and that has seen we've seen the fearsome consequences of that and the fearsome power of that with religious stories and and often to huge benefits i mean some religions have done the most extraordinary volume of good works, which often goes absolutely unspoken, you know, huge, huge initiatives all over any continent you care to mention, really, but also terrible corruptions and terrible acts of violence and terrible inflictions of kind of corruption and decay on, on people's lives. So both, both are really important to understand how that happened. And these aren't, you know, these aren't, none of these people are stupid, you know, they're clever people. It's not just like these are people who are deeply in trouble or socially distressed who subscribe to these stories. These are the cleverest among the clever will sign up for them. So it's really important to understand how that power works. How does that power work? It works, but because, because we're story creatures, because it's you know it's, it's it works in exactly the same way that pheromones work in ants. It's like catnip. We actually just turn towards it if, if we're given the, the right story and it hits us just in the right way, told in a charismatic and magical fashion. We, we will turn into it. We'll turn straight into it and we'll lap it up and we'll try and live in that space because it will feel, it'll feel wonderful to us. And how it gets corrupted is by virtue of human characters. One of the striking images of the Trump era was Trump in his office in the White House with very, and I think he was signing something and he had all, maybe it was something anti-abortion or something like that. But anyway, he had all these figures of the Christian right behind him, all deeply devout Christians on the right wing. And he was there, like, doing their thing. There's no way President Trump is a Christian. <laughs> I mean, not, not really. But the, the point is, he absolutely understands the power of that story and how many people he can get. Actually, he's a bully and a cheat. Do you know what I mean? He's there using stories in a way to further his own ends and the, end, and the good fortune of his family. He, and he creates these crazy stories. And you watch people believe them. And it's not just... The 70 million people believe that the election was stolen from them. You know, that's a story and it's a fictional story. And he can recruit using that kind of the magical power of that story 
by virtue of his charisma. Yeah, I, I th- if it's either the same image or another one, and they they were kind of standing around him, and there was a there was a kind of group prayer going on. I think, and there was like a preacher behind, and he has his hand on his shoulder, and actually, it's incredibly powerful, sort of evocative. Like you say, it is. Yeah, we're, we're talking about the same one. I'd forgotten that you're absolutely right. We're talking about the same image. They were all they were sort of bowed in prayer, weren't they? And and this strange feeling of mixture, looking at the, some of the people believing the prayer, President Trump plainly not believing in anything to do with prayer, but he knows how useful it is to him. You know, he knows just how powerful it is and how many people he can recruit to do his bidding. That's the classic cheat at work. And networks, I think, you know, the, the sort of networks, the stories of networks today, I mean, one of the things that fascinates me about corruption is, I think for the first time in history, we are now inundated with attempts to cheat us. This wasn't happening 20, 30 years ago. Uh, it would be very rare that someone would, you know, be once or twice in my life that someone would try and sell me. So <laughs> I remember once this building gang turned up and tried to sell me a new chimney because, you know what I mean? Because, and they were definitely trying to cheat me. There's nothing wrong with my chimney, but they they said that there was something wrong with my chimney and these reflect. You know, someone tried to cheat me, but that was like once a decade. Now it's literally every day I'm having multiple attempts to cheat me that have got a strange text saying your parcel has failed to be delivered. You know, do you know what I mean? It's like it's almost continual now, this business of people be trying to cheat you. And so we feel like, and, and this space we're living in is becoming extraordinarily stressful. This thing around the kind of magic, then, the kind of, the kind of magic is the, and I guess this is in the art of the creative writing, is kind of knowing and understanding what makes the captivating seed, I guess, because that, and that is in experimenting, that is in craft, that is in structure and the kind of rules of writing, in a sense. It's in the techniques that, that garner people's attention, that win and keep and, and deepen people's involvement in a story. And that's technique. And that's been going on for a long time. But I think our understanding of how these techniques work are becoming more and more, yeah, just more and more interesting, more and more detailed. Uh, and quite a lot of work has been done on that in the last you know, 50 years, certainly, especially since the birth of cinema. Cinema depends on capturing the attention of every single man, woman and child rather than an elite readership um, because of the commercial concerns of cinema. And so there's been an enormous amount of research and really fascinating kind of work on technique about how stories become more and more powerful, how they work on the human mind. So, yeah, that that's also very, that's part of our, that's part of our module. And so, so I'm curious, so story, power, magic, all of these sorts of things. And so, so how and where does this then meet the social network? Where does God meet Facebook? And maybe he already has, for all we know. But what I guess, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, guess I guess, I I think the point I'm trying to make is that religions are a network, so they're, they're, you literally contribute. And so I think a lot of that is about the finances. So I think, so this is why I'm very interested in the fuel for networks. So Facebook is a network. It's a simple agreement among a group of people to subscribe to and give time and attention to a, a, a space, if you like, a, a space that they share with other human beings. And the way in which we do it is very similar to religions. You know, we might have our charitable enterprise or our sporting group, just like religions do. We might, and it's in, and some of that is so such good work is done. If you count up the good works that Facebook does by virtue of these groups of people getting together to help each other and help others or help others who are less fortunate themselves. 
it's enormous and it's sort of often often all we hear about are the bad news you know the corruptions and so on and actually there are huge amounts of good works that happen and huge movements i mean the arab spring was born out of facebook it really was it was born out of a large group of people subscribing to a network where they suddenly experienced life in a very different way and suddenly wanted to change the kind of moral fabric of their society in a radical way and were you know horribly suppressed and, and repressed and so this idea that a, that a network grows and has fuel by virtue of our agreement to give it time and attention and love as it were is also counteracted by how then it actually gets its commercial clout which is via advertising and of course as soon as you introduce advertising everything becomes deceitful and the reason that no children no youth no young people are joining up for facebook anymore it's become corrupt it's a kind of it's actually i think dying much more than people realize and fair enough facebook buys up instagram but actually there's now the same things happening to instagram you know corruption is embedded now via advertising and what you're finding i think increasingly is that people are moving to a new network which doesn't have so much advertising but then in order to monetize that network they'll start advertising on tiktok and so on and so forth and people will migrate to where there's less corruption uh, so that fascinates me the idea of how networks create you know how they spread and how they keep their power and how they grow their financial clout i think all that's very interesting they kind of they need fuel you know you need fuel you, you to run a network and to keep it going and to keep it growing and one one type of fuel is human attention like the time we're giving we're, we're all giving time to jeremy lent's network we're giving our energy to it our affection and our support uh, and probably money as well and certainly we'll need to give it money just like anyone would a church you know we'd we'd turn up on sundays we'd give we'd put money in the collection tin we would support the enterprise of the story of the network and we therefore hope to spread it and grow it and maintain it that's exactly how bundle networks work too they have evolved to link up and spread and find food um the the lovely difference about mycelial bungle networks is that they live off decay and indeed decay and, and create decay um, by virtue of their their strangely kind of animal-like ability to consume things that are going to rot and to create the rot so that is their the rot is their food in a way which is kind of in a way similar to advertising you know for me in facebook the rot is advertising but it's what the network is actually designed by its owners to do if so in other words the executives of facebook are feeding off the rot that is that they're creating via the network of facebook and, and they're enriching themselves to the most astonishing and extraordinary and unprecedented it's interesting you make that make that point because in a way i guess by where my mind was going as you were describing how a kind of mycelial network effectively thrives on its decay and regeneration, whether that actually those sort of man-made networks, for want of a better phrase, whether it's the religious networks, whether it's whether it's Facebook, that sort of social networks, that actually whether they ultimately are constrained by that they have an inability to live beyond a kind of fundamental decay. Well, I'm going to guess yes, because I do think they'll die. I do think that Facebook will die. I, I don't know, because none of us knows. We're, we're moving into uncharted territory. But it certainly seems to me, you know, and I, I get kind of 
300 young people passing by me every year. You know what I mean? And, and the, the use of Facebook has diminished hugely from when I started teaching 14 years ago. The use of Facebook is, is now, but it's still very prevalent, but it's infinitely less. And also the people who even subscribe to it hardly use it. Do you know what I mean? There are many more kind of dead members, I think, rather than actual live active members. And so I find that really interesting, you know, that the network is still there and it can still, you know, claim 7 billion users or whatever, not 7 billion, 3 billion, whatever it is. Um, but how many of them are actually just there, just like dead wood? They're just not using it anymore. And so if you compare a network like that to something like eBay or, you know, the ones where there is a kind of financial, a more honest, shall we say, trading relationship within the network that is still a form of cooperation you've used your shoes you don't want them anymore i want your shoes and i don't want to buy new ones i'll buy this is exactly how cooperation works from the ground up we share and you give me some money and i you give me my your shoes and i give you some money and that is a sort of form of cooperation but the financial business is less corrupt you know it's not deceitful and it's quite straightforward and money working how it sort of should work, really. Whereas I think advertising and the whole business of data harvesting is deeply deceitful and corrupting and bad for the soul. And that's why people are stopping using Facebook because they just can't stand the adverts. You know, you were talking earlier about the kind of the bottom up idea, like the what you have in your community, this kind of reciprocal altruism, which could these ideas feel really beautiful and really timely. And I'm wondering if they get corrupted by the the kind of top down element. So is the top-down, is the kind of top-down push the thing which ultimately kind of undermines the network? It can be, and an enormous amount of storytelling is about the relationship between the bottom-up, you know, cooperation versus the top-down political or religious story that in, that imposes itself and can ruin that bottom-up story. So much storytelling is about exactly that, that relationship between a top-down, and it might be a political structure rather than a religious story, but nonetheless it's imposed sense of justice, you know. So it's a courtroom drama, and that sort of nat this natural feeling we have for cooperation is very instinctive in us, It's and it makes all of us much more optimistic because of that, because that lovely feeling is it's love, it's elation or elevation it's sometimes called. This feeling that rushes in when cooperation works, when and they say it's just as pleasurable to give as it is to receive. And that has been proved to be exactly the case. They've done these wonderful experiments in America where they measure oxytocin in 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 groups of students, you know, when they give a, a small amount of money to a network or receive a small amount of money to a network. And the oxytocin levels is like a little injection of love. You know, oxytocin is the love drug. And it's like a little injection that goes into the bloodstream when I give to the network or when the network gives to me. And one of the key things from that experiment was that if they inform people that it wasn't human beings pressing the computer keys, but it was the machine itself, like a lottery machine or whatever, just choosing who to give to. The oxytocin was not injected at all. It absolutely depends on it being one human to another. And in a way, it's a kind of an idea which we've just become sort of separated from, or um, so much of the kind of narrative of our culture, particularly our culture where we are, is kind of these ideas we externally have become quite disconnected from. I, I think in some ways, yeah, I suppose I'm more optimistic than you then. I, I don't think we're coming disconnected from that. I think in some ways 
the digital space has helped us to realize that more. I think by, by virtue of these digital spaces, we are we're feeling that more frequently, more often. And I think so I'm encouraged by that. I think that's one of the benefits of the digital networks is that they can create this marvelous kind of oxytocin laden impetus for the benefit of everyone, you know, and that's why we're calling it atopia because it crosses boundaries. You know, it's not just about me and me and you being in the UK. It's about stretching across to our, our fellow subjects and, but when you've got a global challenge, as we have now in on in the Anthropocene, when you've got a global challenge such as Jeremy Lenz Network is trying to trying to prosecute, it's really important that we grow and build that cross border. You know, we need a network to 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 go across the borders, across the racial divides, across the gender divides, to touch the common humanity of every single human being. And I think that's going to be essential if we're going to get to where we want to get to. So um, kind of students that both you kind of sort of come into contact with just through the course of your sort of teachings uh, and also the students who, who might kind of come through on this specific course, this kind of this kind of motivation, they, they are still coming to you with this kind of seed of optimism, with this kind of seed of positivity, with this kind of positive will to seek out and find these connections too. Yeah, very definitely. Very definitely, and I think I think it's one of the reasons. I think um, they're also coming with unparalleled levels of anxiety and parallel levels of stress, and I think that's completely natural. I think, given again, we, it's quite easy because it's so normal. It's quite easy to forget just how transforming, you know, the digital era has been on us all. You know, we never used to walk around with, you know, a phone that measures our popularity every single second of every day. Do you know what I mean? We never used to do that. We are pursued by news stories, by our peers, by our friends, our followers, our approvals, our ratings, you know, our likes, our dislikes. And I think it's a highly stressful environment. So although I think we've got an unparalleled, I think we've got a newly politicised youth in a very exciting way who are very determined to change things for the better for everyone as well not just for the elite groups who have been lucky enough to be born into wealthy countries and i think that's an incredibly powerful force that haven't really found its full might yet but i also think there are also unprecedented levels of anxiety attached to the digital sphere where we're all spending so much time that's the point when I was a kid, I'm 62. When I was a kid, you maybe watch a couple of hours of television and the rest of the time you're with actual people in real environments. Now, if you take a train into London now and you look into, you know, it's maybe winter in the afternoon and you're, you're traveling on this train and you're looking into all these office windows, everyone's doing what we're doing, whether you're at work or whether it's your social life, or whether it's watching television in the evening, you are, you're in the digital realm more than you're in the real world. Um, and so I'm kind of curious about the, the kind of where, where which you sort of touched on a bit, where do you hope um, students who've gone through the kind of module, where, so where, where do I get to at the end? How is my kind of, how has my life changed in whatever sort of way that it might be come the end? I thought it'd be incredibly vainglorious, wouldn't it, if I thought, I, 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 we do. I mean, one of the lovely things that happens in teaching at university level is is the messages you get from your students of 10 years ago who might just send you an email and say, I'm here now and I remember what happened in your class. You know what I mean? It's 
it, it brings tears to my eyes when I get emails like that. And it's, it's deeply affecting to think, to believe vaingloriously that you're going to improve, improve someone's life. And, and it, it's the wonderful, the most wonderful feeling. Do I, what do I think they're going to, hopefully they're going to come out of this module with a, a more kind of evolved relationship with the digital era, let's say with, let's call it digital humanity, about the humanity of the digital age. And I think more able to cope with it, hopefully, and more aware of its dangers and more excited by its powers. Yeah. yeah, so they kind of understand essentially what's happening, the power of story, how it's appropriated and harnessed by these networks. So they have some of that, some of those tools to engage. Tools to really understand it and therefore deal with it as a kind of life force, really. It's, that's what it's become. You know, it's become its own life force. It really is it's swallowing us all up in the most amazing way. Like I say, I'm firmly convinced that the insides of our heads are different from how they were 20 years ago. Yeah, right. So that was, I wanted to just pick, pick up on that, come back to that. So in, in, in kind of, in what way? And I appreciate that's like a, a sort of huge question, but what, 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 what's your, what's your feeling around that? I think we're living in the imaginary realm. We're living in, we're living in the world of thought to a degree that if before it was like 80% in the real world with objects and props and the grass outside and the field and the barn and the walls and the doors and my cooking tray and all the stuff I have to do to keep life going. If before it was, you know, 80, 20 or even 90, 10, I think it's now the other way around. I think we're living in the realm of thought, the, the imaginary space, the space of where thinking happens 80% of the time. And therefore I think, and of course we're moving up through the world, coping with feeding ourselves and having lifting coffee cups when we meet our friends uh, and we're not doing anything like that worse or badly we're, we're putting on amateur dramatic shows we're taking our driving tests we're engaging with the real world but i think we are now in our heads the kind of imaginary realm or the realm of thought is now a room that's taking up 80 percent of the inside of our house rather than the 20 percent that it was and i think we have to learn how to do that really successfully and i think we have to learn to do that without falling prey to huge fears and falling prey to huge anxieties and being stymied by the kind of, yeah, the imaginary realm, if you like, the realm of the imaginary. Which kind of, in a, in a sense, I guess, is the realm of the magic too. Exactly, yeah, exactly. It's where magic lives, certainly. And so without the tools, without the practice, without the kind of means to let the, the kind of magic find form elsewhere, that's the place where you, we get, you know, the danger is you get consumed by it. Yeah, you get done down by it, I think, and, and everything becomes quite scary because it is a Pandora's box. You know, the digital space is a Pandora's box. All, all street fights, all wars, all pornography and gambling is there, the other side of the screen, all the time, continually available to us. Uh, and like I say, this you know, even, even if you take the small matter of the amount of emails you get trying to fool you into parting with your money, even that, it's just like it's every day someone's trying to cheat you. And and that, that that in itself is an extraordinary thing to have to deal with. And so that so that that kind of suggests a kind of much broader, much wider corruption, doesn't it? I mean, so a kind of a, a sort of a society which is sort of eating itself in a sense uh, when that is the kind of norm. And actually, it's not that many people. It's just that via bots, they can reach you know hundreds of millions of people with a single push of a keystroke. They can reach hundreds of millions of people's email addresses with the same attempted story about a failed delivery parcel or whatever it might be 
So all this I find deeply interesting. And it's the same old, you know, storytelling. The enemies of the cooperative effort have always been the same. And they're the baddies of our storytelling. And that's the thief, the bully, the cheat, and the freeloader, the free rider, the person who doesn't do the washing up, basically. And these are the, they're coming at us all the time. And, but they're now coming at us. (laughs) Just, they used to be just there as human beings, but now they're faceless kind of digital um, initiatives, if you like, perpetrated by individuals still, by human hand, but via this extraordinarily expansive kind of network. So I guess, does the, um, uh, and this is obviously a big job, not just for you, does, does the, the, the cooperative effort, you know, your, that, your, the lovely phrase, the kind of reciprocal altruism, does this need the story? This needs the kind of telling of this story that is forceful and strong enough to counter the kind of the, the weight and insidiousness of the, you know, the, the lost package. Yeah, and I guess what I'm hoping for the module is it becomes that story. If, if you were to give my overarching and you know, massively vainglorious ambition for the module, is that the module becomes the story. So in other words, the module itself becomes the story that, that helps us, that gives us our sane group that has a handle on this enormously life-changing period that we're going through. I guess the community where we've met, the deep transformation, in a sense, those ideas need, a, you know, that that needs story too, doesn't it? It's a thing that kind of binds everybody together, which I guess is partly about rules, partly about common principles, partly about shared identity and something which transcends. So one of my citations from Jeremy Lent was this business of this transformation that has to happen now is the equivalent to the industrial revolution or the birth of agriculture it's an enormous society-wide change and the major difference as he points out is it's those other ones if you count the invention of agriculture or the industrial revolution we merely had to follow our own self-interest and that change happened but now we have to do exactly the opposite we have to go against our self-interest we have to give up our car we have to reduce our electricity consumption we have to do things that are really quite self-sacrificing. And for that, you need a story. You know, you need a story. That sort of self-sacrifice is quite easy if you have a story. If you have the story of what it is, you will, we are all willing to sacrifice ourselves for the greater good. It's our, it's our great asset as humanity. And that's why... And, and the lovely thing is that actually, as Jeremy Lin's network, the Deep Transformation Network, there are, there are many of such networks. The danger is that there are so many of them that they actually fragment the, the power of a single network. And I think that's the danger. So everyone want, everyone's starting a network. So there are a million tiny networks. But if only they all merged together, would create a huge human force of, of impact. And so I do think that's one of the challenges, if you like, for networks, that the growth of networks in the future is... How are we going to actually, if you look at, if you look at studies for the, for drugs, if you look at a new drug for an illness, you know, you'll have 30 different studies maybe testing the effects of a particular drug and they're peer reviewed and they're set up with, they've got all the qualifications for proper reviews, but actually the most useful one is the one that joins them all together. You know what I mean? So that all the reviews, all the peer reviews are all added together and then that becomes much more accurate by virtue of it having a much larger sampler. And, is, and so that that kind of process, that sort of mechanism, if you like, that common to, say, the kind of mycelial network and how kind of things work there? Yeah, I mean, mycelial networks are kind of, they are, they are magical in their own right. 
And this is the area where I know least. And so you're going to have to come back to me in a few months time when I've done a lot more research. But the way in which they, you know, I mean, there are, there are obviously many, there are, there are many different species of fungus, but the way in which they cooperate with other species to for the benefit of both themselves and that species is really, well, it's the story of evolution. It is how, it is how most, you know, forests grow and have survived just by virtue of the fungal networks that help roots extract benefit from soil they couldn't do it by themselves and the fungal networks couldn't do it without the the tree roots and so they're completely their fates are closely aligned and embedded they literally live and it's a form of reciprocal altruism you scratch my back and that's what networks should do if i'm better off by joining you know a million networks together then each of those networks becomes much stronger by virtue of being part of the bigger whole. So I hope to be maybe come back and visit again when I'm much more eloquent about the actual details, of, especially of the uh, fungal network. Even more eloquent, not much more, because you've been extremely eloquent. I do want to be interested, just I guess, and as a kind of final thought, is you, the seed you uh, planted there, because as Jeremy talks around the uh, the Industrial Revolution, but he also kind of makes the uh, the kind of observation that, you know, people were 100 years into the Industrial Revolution before it was kind of given the name of that. So actually all of this kind of change potentially is happening, uh, and you know, which is maybe kind of bubbling up in the forms of many, many networks and something else we were talking about at the beginning. The other thing which, so, you know, is, is the opportunity for agency. And whilst, you know, you make the, the kind of excellent point that actually we're not working in our interest, but equally that we can have agency. We were talking about this in the context of, of students and the kind of the, your willingness and ability and interest in just trying and making connections. Because in a way, the, you know, the networks we form are the sum of the connections, you know. And so the more that we kind of foster that, the more that we work towards that, you know, whether it's two people talking, whether it's two people introducing a third, and actually kind of the multiplicity of that lends real strength to the movement too. Absolutely. Well, Sam, thank you very much. It would be very, very good to to have you back. Um, you you can do the research on the mycelial networks. And by the time you've done that, I actually would have read Merlin Sheldrake's book rather than it just sitting somewhere on the shelf up there. It's actually a really wonderful book. It's completely, uh, it's incredibly gripping. And um, yeah, so yeah, I look forward to delving into that aspect of it a lot more. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Professor Sam. If you liked it or, you know, if you didn't like it, please share it. Share it with someone who might like it as much as you. Share it with someone who might dislike it as much as you. Either way, that's the lifeblood of this venture. This little adventure is sharing the work. So please feel free to share. If you're interested in what we're doing, you can find all of the other all of the other interviews uh, on the website, buddhaontheboard.com. Go look for Peripheral Thinking there. Uh, and of course, on all your favourite podcast channels. Go check it out. Be sharing. Be merry uh, and we look forward to speaking to you next time. Thanks again.